Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. So the last time we covered uh, chapter 1, which basically showed us a few things, we saw the Messiah's bloodline, uh, the virgin birth, and today we're going to see the visit of the Magi uh, and King Herod's attempt to kill the Messiah while he was still very young. Starting with verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king or heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now understand that in Luke chapter 2, if you take all the Gospels together, it's really a neat... Somebody did this. He took all the Gospels together and put them in chronological order. And boy, what an eye-opener to just see every event as it happened in order. Because between chapters 1 and 2, Luke 2, the other Gospel, another Gospel, already covered Jesus' birth and the visit by the shepherd. So here he's a little older. Now, it wasn't a big party at the manger. <laughs> um, you know, the shepherds came first, and then the wise men came when he's a little older. A lot of times you see the, uh, the manger scenes with the shepherds, there's wise men, there's animals, there's Mary, Joseph. It's like a big party at the manger. Uh, but the truth is, there was, a, there was an order to this. The shepherds came first, and then the magi come later. So if, I end up, if you end up inviting me your, to your house for the holidays, I prom promise I won't say anything about it anymore. But a few points of interest. Number one, there were several theories about this star. Now, years ago, um, there was speculation that it was a shooting star or a supernova. And if you understand the idea behind those two uh, manifestations, it really doesn't fit scientifically. The way the star is moving, it's stopping, it's changing direction. So what could it be? Well, if you log on to Bethlehemstar.net, this is probably the best example that I've seen about the star. Using a program, a computer program, we can understand, based on physics and the laws of motion, Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe talked to us about planetary motion, and you can start with today and go back thousands of years and plug the parameters into this computer program, where are you on the, in the world, and the computer screen will show you exactly what the night sky looked at look like. And you can click the mouse hour by hour, day by day, and see the difference in the constellation. Why? Because we know the ellipses that the planets make in our solar system, so we can calculate it mathematically. It's pretty brilliant. What would, the, what would residents of maybe uh, back then would be known as Persia, we know it is Iran today, east of Jerusalem, what would they have seen in the sky roughly 2,000 years ago? Well, they would have seen Jupiter. Now, back then, everybody understood Jupiter as the king planet. They would have seen Jupiter reflecting light and making sort of a coronation over Regulus. Now, think about the names. Regulus is the king's star. So what happens is Jupiter is making these almost looks like coronations 
on top of Regulus in the constellation of Leo, which was another picture of royalty. So all these three pictures, the Eastern observer would have looked up in the sky and said, man, something's happening over there. We got to go see what it is. Now, this is, this is true. Uh, it, it's, you know, with computer programs, it's not a stretch anymore. It's actually what happened over 2,000 years ago. And this brings us to the Magi. Um, in the Greek, the word is magoi, where we get the word magician from. And these guys were scholars of their day, astronomers, scientists. And it's really an example of pagans that God has decided to enlighten with biblical truth. And if they came from the Persia, Iran area, it would have taken them 750 miles with their entourage and their supplies to go west to head towards Judea. Right? So in your mind, you get an idea of what, what's going on here. But what the, the Magi did was they used scientific methods to find God. And this, you might say, well, that's ridiculous because we know that science and God and faith don't mesh. That's only been in the last few centuries. If you look at history, you'll find that for years, great inventors, uh, great men and women of science would acquiesce and understand there is a God. If you ever read Albert Einstein's writings, he said that in the beginning, when he had his mathematical equations, he used what was called a cosmological constant. And what he realized is, after time, he looked at his equations and said, there has to be a God. I can't do this without there being a God, a divine being. As a matter of fact, he greatly revered Jesus if you read Albert Einstein's writings. Don't listen to what you see in the media. Do the research for yourself. The only problem Einstein had was, in his day, he lived in war-torn Europe. You know, the Holocaust and all the things that were going on. And in his, in his emotional state, he couldn't rectify an all-powerful and all-loving God with what was going on in Europe. So again, we go back to that desire-based theology. So he allowed his, his opinions and his emotions to cloud his judgment a little bit, but he always went back to a divine creator. I bet you didn't know that. You know, you start reading about these men and women of science, and you find that um, AnswersInGenesis.org has over thousands of scientists, uh, botanists, uh, chemists, microbiologists, who all say, yes, there has to be a God. But you don't see that because there's a bias against scientists in the scientific realm who believe in a God. You have to believe in evolution. And we see that in Expelled and the Truth Project. Pretty good stuff. But let's go back to Micah 5.2. This was, and we're going to find a lot of fulfilled prophecy in the book of Matthew. Micah 5.2, 700 B.C. roughly. Uh, Micah was a contemporary of Hosea the prophet. Uh, and he tells us, there's more elaboration here. Remember, Herod asked, Herod's troubled, and he asked his, his priests and his holy men, go look in the scripture, tell me about this Messiah thing, because Herod considered himself the king of the Jews. Remember, his position was a political position, not appointed by God. So the, his, his council, his staff, only gave him what he needed to know. But let me read Micah 5.2 in its entirety. And it says that, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, there's a difference between the Bethlehem down south and the Bethlehem of Zebulun. There was two Bethlehems. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So we see that God even says, let me take a small town. Let me stack the odds against me and prove me, God says in his word. Prove me to see if this thing that I say doesn't come to pass. 
So it's a small town, there's a little bit of a population. He takes all these parameters, stacks the deck against himself, and bam, the Messiah is born there. And it, it continues. The last part that I read, it says, he is from the days of eternity, literally in the Hebrew. And that tells us that it, it kind of gives a credence to the, the deity of Christ. So when Jesus was born in the manger, that's not when he existed. He was pre-existent. He was from the days of eternity. He just came in bodily form to be born in the manger. Understand the deity of Christ there. Perhaps the most striking phrase in this entire chapter is that Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled about the Messiah. Right? Now, let me tell you a little bit about Herod the Great. Of course, that was a worldly name. I didn't think he was so great, but that was his title. He got his title. He got his position. It was a political position from the Roman emperor. Uh, he was half Jewish, half Idumean. He considered himself the king of the Jews. And it was a quasi-spiritual position, the office that he held. Not that he was spiritual, but the office that he held. See, he was surrounded by Jerusalem and the entire seat of spirituality. So this is an absolutely stunning statement. Here's Herod the king. From, he's, half of him is from God's chosen people. He's in uh, Judea. He's in Jerusalem. He sees the temple, which is a spiritual place where the Shekinah glory years ago had come and gone, God's presence. He's around the priests who make sacrifice for the people. He's around God's word. And everybody is upset that the Messiah came. Well, he's definitely going to be held accountable. Notice this. The chief priests and scribes didn't refute the Messiah's birth. They gave Herod what he needed to know. The problem was that the Messiah, as he grew, would take away Herod's power base, and it threatened his very existence and office. And this is the problem with religion. The problem with religion without the Holy Spirit is men love power. Women love power too. And what happens is you give a, a person a position of authority, even in an ecclesiastical or religious sense, without the Holy Spirit, their desire or their tendency is to lord it over the people. Even Jesus said to his disciples, they were getting a little high on themselves, and Jesus had to correct them and said, you need to be servants. It's not for you to lord over each other. That's what the Gentiles do. We do things differently. We're servants. So understand that. Uh, the Nicolaitans, the Pharisees, and even today we can see a lot of re religious establishments, there is a lording over the people instead of serving the people. How many religious men would want to give back their seat of power today if Jesus came? Right? That's a, it's a good question to ask. How many uh, pastors or evangelists or ministries build up to these great worldly kingdoms? Right? I just got my video feed hooked up. I'm on TV for, for a week. You know? I just got my satellite churches so my image can be pumped into other churches around me and everybody can see me preach. I got news for you. If the Lord came today, I'd be fine with it. Here, here you go, Lord. It's all yours. <laughs> this is great. But, but you know what? There are some that even today, you, you might look at this and be stunned, but even today in the religious community, many would say, what? The Lord's coming back soon? No way. I'm having too much fun here. Now, let's take this down to the, to the average believer. How many believers would grumble if they knew the Lord was coming back tonight? You know, I just retired. I just got, I just started making money. You know, I just bought a new house. You know, I can't wait for the baby to be born. And look, these are all, these are all good things. But we have to understand that we're just pilgrims. And the true test of our heart 
is our relationship with the Lord is that trusting God that at any moment if he comes back, his timing is good timing. No matter what's going on in our life, we are pilgrims. We're passing through this earth. We're not supposed to love this earth and make it our home. It's a temporary abode. Like the children of Israel in the wilderness, they would set up their tents. When the Lord would move, they'd pack everything up and follow him where he would stop. They'd set up their tents again. And this went on for years. And we have to have that same mindset. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, we know he's lying. Now, we start with this. Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem. And you see the stages of sin here. This is what we notice. Number one, he's troubled. The holy people are troubled. Well, how's this going to affect my position? How's this going to affect my salary? How's this going to affect my promotions if the Messiah comes here? So you have a mindset. It's a sinful thought. I'm troubled about what's going on. I don't like this whole Messiah idea. The second thing is the plotting stage. Now, of course, he's plotting to kill the, the Messiah child. Just think of the magnitude of that. It's crazy. And then the third is he actually does kill the children in Bethlehem and its districts. So you see the stages of sin, the thought. Take every thought captain, captive to the obedience of Christ. Right? Then the plotting stage, you run with that thought. And then the actual action stage, your thoughts turn into actions. And we see this in James 1 about the stages of sin and when it, it, it gives full birth uh, to, to what's going on there. Now next Sunday, and only because... I, I haven't even fully put it together, so I'm just saying it's because of the word. I can't wait for next Sunday because it's about John the Baptist. And I took different scriptures, different uh, gospel accounts, and, and put it in there in an order so we can see all about this guy, John the Baptist. He was sold out for Christ, but he taught us how to repent, which is not heard much in today's society. So I'm really excited about next Sunday um, to teach about John the Baptist. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So the star stands over the house. You know? Again, if you're a naysayer or you're a critic, a Bible critic, but you're a scientist, you can understand how the star could stand over the house. It's very simple. If it was Jupiter, Jupiter was a very large planet. And remember, the word for star is aster, where we get the word asteroid. It could have been a ball of hot gases, but according to the Greek, it could have been a planetoid or a planet. So understand that that word is a general word. It didn't have to be a ball of hot gases. So what happens is um, you can have... Now, listen, it's very easy to understand because even now in our solar system, we, we, have, we don't have nine planets anymore, right? We have eight because Pluto got demoted, Right? They took his title away, so he's, he's not considered a planet anymore. Poor Pluto. So what happens is, what retrograde motion is, if, I'm on, if this platform is moving, and, it, and it's, it's on a trajectory, and then I'm looking at something else that's on a moving platform, 
What can happen is depending on how, what, how the pass is that I make towards that trajectory, it can look like the planet is moving, 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 and then stop. It can also appear to back up and go the other way. Again, you know, if you're um, driving faster than the person next to you, and it's all reference, you look over at the car, it looks like he's backing up, but you're just going faster than him. So a retrograde motion can make planets do amazing things. They can dance in the sky. And any of you who have looked through a telescope, uh, when you see that stuff, it blows you away. Look at this. I mean, you, you can get really mesmerized by the planets. So this is, again, I have to say this. When there's a, a miracle or when there's something like magnificent in the scripture, there's two ways it can happen. Number one, God can just violate the physical laws that he made. Nothing sinful about that. He just can. He takes the preexistent son of God and says, you know, go into human form and die for their sins. That's a miracle. He just interrupts human history, and here comes Jesus. Now, he can interrupt the laws of physics and the natural laws, and, um, you know, because he spoke in Genesis. He just spoke, and everything came into existence. And the word create is bara in Hebrew, which means out of nothing. So you get the Big Bang, and we understand that everything's moving, there's angular momentum, there's trajectories, and we say... Uh, Wow, the Big Bang, or some people do. But then I would say, well, where did the stuff come from to make the Big Bang? You know, Where did the spark come from? Where did the natural materials? How do you get something from nothing? Now, we haven't answered that one yet, but we're working on it. The second thing that can happen is that, the, that God can just work within his laws that he's created. Where, where the star... Now, the star could be a miracle, but it could be, as we spoke about, a planetary movement and, and such... Uh, just like Jesus, when Jesus said to Peter, should we pay the tax or not to the temple? You know, we're the king's kids. And Peter says, we shouldn't. He says, okay, go cast your line in. There's a fish over there. You know, pull the fish out. You open his mouth, and there's going to be, a, you know, a piece of money. Not, not ridiculous, because the fish oftentimes would feed off the bottom, and you can still find Roman coins in the Mediterranean. The fish sees something shiny, goes to swallow it, can't get it down. Peter comes with the line, Jesus can see that that fish has it, boom, open up his mouth, hey, there's the temple tax. So understand when it comes to miraculous things in the scripture, he can work within the laws or he can work not within the laws. He's God, he can do whatever he wants. They're explainable or they don't have to be explainable. So Jesus went from the manger to a house because the census uh, registration is passed, things are probably slowing down a little, Jesus is a little older, it's a little colder outside. But what's interesting is the Magi, going back to them. They worship a child. Now, there's a few times in the scripture where Mary sees what's going on with Jesus and the amazing things that he does, and, and she ponders these things in her heart. Imagine Mary and Joseph, and Jesus is in the manger, and, and the shepherds come. Imagine he's a little bit older, and these three dignitaries come. Again, put yourself into the text. See what's going on here. Dignitaries, possibly from Persia, almost a thousand-mile trip, They've got to have security, they've got to have caravans, they've got to have food and water to make that long trek, and they all come down, they dismount probably off their camels, and they kneel down, and they worship her son. You know? She, she heard what the Holy Spirit said in the beginning when she, she was pregnant, but it probably blew her and Joseph away to a large extent. Who really is this, this person? Amazing. Now, why would dignitaries from a foreign land worship a child. At the peril of getting caught by Herod, getting taken into custody, being imprisoned, and prisons back then were no joke, this is what they were risking, possibly losing their life for disrespecting the king. But they did it anyway, because they knew who Jesus was. Do we know who Jesus is? 
right? Does it, for those who look at this and say, why would these guys do this? Why would we do it? Why would if our lives are, we're losing money and, and things are happening and our loved ones are in the hospital, why do we still have patience and calm? Yes, we get emotionally upset, but we always eventually go back to the Lord and say, you know what, no matter what happens, he has it under control. Again, the world doesn't understand that either, but it's something that we need to understand. Um, all throughout Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he's been worshipped. What about you today? They understood the truth. Do we understand the truth? Now, we look at these three gifts that they presented, and I'm sure you've heard this many a times. What do they represent? Number one, gold. Every king, this was befitting his office as a king. Every king had a treasury with gold and precious jewels and metals and such. So this would be befitting for Jesus as a king. The other gift was frankincense. Aside from having a funny name, it was a fragrant gum of a tree that was often used in the temple services, uh, in the different recipes that they had. Uh, They would use this frankincense. So this was befitting Jesus' office as a priest. Now, unlike any normal priest, Jesus was our high priest, uh, Hebrews tells us. So not only was he offering the sacrifice from the people to God, he was the sacrifice. So this set him apart from every other priest that ever served in the temple. Jesus was the sacrifice, and he offered himself up as a sacrifice. The third uh, gift was myrrh, another dried gum used in anointing and embalming. This was befitting his office as a prophet. Why? Because the Bible tells us, and we're going to get to that, that most of the prophets were killed. And most of the prophets were killed by their own people. (laughs) See? Uh, they would give very unpopular messages, and a prophet probably, if you did the statistics on his lifespan, didn't have a very high lifespan. Uh, So we understand that Jesus is a prophet. He would take the message from God and give it to the people. So you see these three offices that he fulfills. And I got to believe, after going through all this, I got to believe that the Magi were, were, were good guys. You know, whether they came, not being sure, by the time they were done, I believe that they took the message of salvation to their land back east when they went home. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And there was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, quote, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is Hosea 11.1, which is being fulfilled. If you go back to Hosea's day, it originally was for the, um, it meant for the, the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. But this is very curious. If you look at the prophetic words back in the Old Testament, B.C., they would speak about Israel. They would speak, like God would speak through the prophets to the people about his people, right? About Israel, the nation. Oftentimes he would speak of Israel at least as a female, sometimes as a virgin, sometimes as God's wife, sometimes as an unfaithful wife that he ended up in one uh, prophet that he had a divorce because of her marital unfaithfulness, worshiping other gods. But Hosea speaks this prophecy and speaks about Israel as a male child, very unusual for the people back then to hear. Well, here it's played out. Pretty amazing. All those years before Jesus, the people at the time would would, would listen to the prophet and be like, you know, what's this? 
here, here's the fulfillment of that, right? And again, as we, we go through these prophecies, there's so many of them here. Uh, and you also, you see these multiple applications and fulfillment. In other words, God would speak a prophecy to the people, and often to, you know, to show his, his, his might and that it was really him, um, there would be a short-term fulfillment. Something would happen in the prophet's time period and life, and the people's life, it would come to pass. But God also, just to blow, <laughs> it blows me away when I read the prophecies. He would also speak a prophecy to be fulfilled maybe hundreds or thousands of years into the future. There are prophecies that are coming true today in our political system in the world that have been uttered 3,000 years ago. There is no other holy book that can do that because God is outside of time. So you see these multiple fulfillments. Uh, Verse 16, he goes on, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they were no more. Another Old Testament scripture, uh, Jeremiah 31.15, with parallels to Jeremiah 10, and Psalm 2 in general, which we'll get to. Now, understand that in Genesis 35, you have Jacob, right? Uh, And his wife, Rachel, one of his wives, and she's pregnant, and they're actually going through uh, that area, that southern area. Uh, He's going from Bethel to Bethlehem, and Rachel dies en route. And it does appear that she, if you look at the map of, of the cities, it does appear that she died in Ramah. So that would make sense here between those two towns. Now, in Jeremiah's context, when he's uttering this, he's speaking about the conquer of Judah by Babylon. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar sieged the city, Jerusalem. If you know your history, the Babylonians eventually win. They destroy uh, the, the walls and such, and, and it's pretty bad. They take a lot of the Jews, and they either deport them or they kill them. And again, Ramah was like a way station to get to Babylon. So you see another fulfillment there. In Matthew's day, he's speaking about the fulfillment in what Herod does, right? Bethlehem and its districts in in the surrounding areas. Uh, Herod kills these children, and Rachel almost, you know, wherever she is, not from the grave, but of course, you know, figuratively, she's crying because her children, again, are being slaughtered by uh, somebody evil. Now, Some have looked at this passage, and I love to read critiques of the Bible because, you know, I always want to be preaching the truth. I'm not just going to be, you know, with blinders on. I love to look at uh, critical essays. I love to look at criticism of the Scripture. And critics will say that, well, how could Herod do that and get away with it? How come it's not recorded in the history books? Very simple. Herod was, he was loon. He was out of his mind. Again, he he had a political position. Herod... Killed one of his, he had nine wives. Uh, one of them, Miriam, he kills her. Herod kills two of his sons and his brother-in-law, all because he was paranoid. He was afraid that somebody was going to usurp his, his throne. So you, you got motive here. So if we're doing an investigation and we interview Herod, you got motive. Moving on. There was a saying in Jerusalem that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son's. Now check this out. Being a half-Jew, he wouldn't eat the pig, so the pig's safe from being on a dinner table. The second point is a pig couldn't usurp Herod and sit on his throne as a pig. So so if you're a pig in Herod's court, you are good. 
Not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. You're, you're good. The other thing that happens is that Bethlehem had a relatively small population, and if you take all the male children, so separate the females, now there's the male children, separate uh, above two years old, there's not a whole lot of kids. It doesn't make it better, but it was a, a socio-economically possibly depressed area, and he could do this, and everybody knew he was bloodthirsty anyway, and there was no retribution. So there you have your, your uh, reasoning for that. But you see this desire to hold on to power to the point of madness. And I see this recurring theme in uh, religion and politics. Now, I've just been reading a lot of, you know, and listen, I'm just reading the news every day and I see these things. Uh, Again, religion and politics, that's the common theme there. Uh, In politics, uh, you know, obviously you know what happened with the elections in the House. Nancy Pelosi still trying to hold on to that seat. And the rest of the Democrats are saying, listen, you had your chance. We're going in another direction. She's doing all these backdoor deals to still retain power as the Speaker of the House in the minority position because you still have a, a position of power. But you see this in elected officials. They're there too long. They'll buy votes. They'll go out there and for a pack of cigarettes, you know, they'll give you a meal. you got to vote for me. And they, they rack up a lot of votes that way because they don't want to give up that power. Say it ain't so in a, in a republic, yeah, but um, representative government, yeah, it still happens here. And we know that in the future, the Antichrist will muster up his armies. Again, how could this be possible? He will fight against God's people and fight against God himself and challenge God. How could a, a mere man do that? That's insane. But we know in Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage? A very popular uh, psalm. And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers of the earth take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break his bonds in pieces and cast him away far from us, his cords far from us. So basically, in a sense, man is saying, Lord, you created us. You created us with the raw materials. Thank you very much. We don't want any of your involvement. We'll, we'll rule the earth from here. You know, please don't get involved in our business. It's crazy. And we see madness really comes uh, at the expense or after rejecting God. So Herod was surrounded by the things of God. We spoke about this, and he he goes crazy in in a sense. In Matthew 12, a very interesting scripture that we're going to get to, it says that when an evil spirit possesses a man, and then that spirit leaves the man for whatever reason, uh, he comes back and finds the man clean. So he, he realizes he doesn't want to lose that ground anymore. So the evil spirit comes back into the man, takes seven other uh, spirits more wicked than himself, and the last state is worse for the man than the beginning. Be careful of getting cleaned up. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get cleaned up. Be careful of dabbling in God's word, rejecting it, dabbling it, rejecting it. I don't know where, where you guys are. You know, I'm, I can't see through the, the cranium there, but um, be careful of that. Because if you look at, and you do a study of these men, Herod, surrounded by the things of God, constantly rejecting. Look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh, seeing all the great things that that God was doing, and even the people, his own people, quietly were giving the Jews gold and artifacts because they, they wanted to be in God's good graces. Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, so God eventually solidified him in that position. Nero started out as a great builder, a great, uh, you know, you, you only hear about the crazy things about Nero, but he started out pretty good. And right about the time that Paul was preaching to Nero, and then, of course, he didn't receive the Lord, he started losing it and then started persecuting the believers. Because what happens is when you get cleaned, you hear the word, somebody preaches to you, you read the scripture, you see it, maybe you see a message, hear a message, and then you just keep dabbling in it. Eventually, the last state is worse than the beginning. 
So I really want to encourage you, if you're, you know it's right, make a commitment to the Lord and stay with that commitment. Right? Many of these men had power, wealth, anything they could have wanted, but right now they're burning in hell for eternity. There's nothing we can do about it. It's where they are. Now, you may say when you, when you see God, um, well, I didn't know. You know, nobody really, and we try these little things, nobody really explained it to me. So I'm going to help you out here so that when you leave here, there's no excuse. <laughs> right? We're sinners. I'm a sinner. I have to repent on a regular basis. Even if it's my thoughts, I have to repent. And what happens is Jesus came and died for our sins because I, in my state, even if I took a popularity contest and I won a popularity contest and I go to God with that, look at the popularity contest, I'm sorry, it's not going to do anything for you. The only way to stand in God's presence is for your sins to be dealt with because he is a holy, righteous, and just God. So he sent his only son, big sacrifice to him, big sacrifice to his son to come to the earth and to die for your sins. Jesus even said, while he was doing miracles and everybody loved him, he said, you know, it's needful that I die for your sins. And if I don't, you guys are in a lot of trouble, and I'm paraphrasing. So if you don't know the Lord, we need to repent and say, you know what, Lord, I'm wrong. You know, it's self-directed life, my sinfulness. I need you, Jesus, as my Savior. And to, and to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So there it is, you know, certainly clearly established. So there's no excuse. Now, I'm just going to touch on one quick thing before we read the last few verses. And honestly, I was studying, and it's so amazing how you think you know what you're going to say, and then you start reading, and you're like, wow, I didn't see that. After all the years of going through the Gospels, this thing just jumped out at me. These two scriptures, going back to Hosea 11, going back to Jeremiah 31. Check this out. Hosea 11 says that God draws those he loves with gentle cords, with bands of love. Jeremiah 31 says that God draws us with loving kindness. He's a gentleman. There is a doctrine out there, irresistible grace, where God basically tramples over your will... And he, if you're the elect, he's, he's sent his, you know, he's going to mesmerize you. He's going he's to draw you towards him, and you can't resist it. No, God is a gentleman. He loves us. He's not sterile. It's, it's a perfect picture of what love should be. But, on the other hand, don't miss his advances towards you. And I would say that even in the scripture here, he's advancing towards you. He's reaching out to you through his word. He sent his son into the world to die for your sins. That's love. I was won over by his love. I, you know, that's just me. Verse 19, last few verses. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, that is Herod Archelaus, was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, Herod the Great. He was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. So now he's, they're moving north. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And I love this. You know, when you're serving the Lord and you're in God's will, 
it's just such a great feeling. Imagine Mary and Joseph with all the, the murders and the political posturing and the, the, the crazy things that were happening in their country. God was constantly moving them and keeping them safe because he's sovereign and his will was going to be fulfilled. And when I look at that, I think, gee, if we're in God's will and he's using us, what a great feeling that is. We have his protection. As long as he's using us, nothing can harm us because his will will be done. It's just a great feeling. Verse 22, Herod the Great. So he dies, his son Herod Archelaus. Well, he didn't kill all his sons. He still had a few left. Uh, so Herod Archelaus, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. He gets onto the throne. Now, this is interesting. After the Herods, you have the Romans. So you have the kind of Jews, and they're, they're doing day-to-day operations, and the Romans don't really interfere just to get their tax money, make sure everybody's following the law, but they let the Jews, Jews govern themselves. After the Herods uh, are done, Capanius comes in, which you probably never heard of Capanius, but he was, look it up, he was another uh, ruler of Judea. And then after Capanius, we know Pontius Pilate. We're going to read about him. Now, something very interesting happens. There's a break between the Jews, there's a, a bright line, and then the Romans take over. Does anybody, can you raise your hand, Bible prophecy students? The prophecy, Genesis 49.10, right? All the way back in the Torah. I had a great discussion about a month ago with a Kabbad rabbi, and I sat with him, and they just followed the Torah. And we sat there, and we went, and I was reading Scripture. He goes, yeah, I know that Scripture. I said, you know the one about the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes, which meant that the Jews still kept their sceptership. And once that sceptership was removed, that was the time period when the Messiah would come to, pr- to prominence. Most people are like, wow, that's amazing. So I'm sitting with this rabbi, and I'm like, and then we know what happened with Jesus. And he goes, he said, you know, he couldn't refute it. I gave him this really cool book written by a Jewish believer, uh, and I'm still waiting for the, the results of it. But this little scripture, all the way back in Genesis, spoke about a political uh, situation where the, the Romans would take over from the Jews, and this gets better. The sceptorship was removed from the Jews, because when they wanted to um, uh, kill Jesus, they had to go before the Romans. You see, they had to ask permission for capital punishment, because the Romans were in charge now of that area. I would just say this that God's word is a deep, intricate, prophetic message. And again, the critics say, well, the Bible was written by men so that we would all behave. Now, I would say this, that being in law enforcement for a long time, when you learn to deal with liars, liars do interesting things. Number one, they're vague, right? And they're not intricate, and they're not detailed, because they don't want to get caught in their own lies. When you keep lying, eventually the truth is going to come out because you have inconsistencies, the Bible it is amazing. Even, even uh, Nostradamus, who was a, a mystic, uh, he had these quatrains, and he said, a man would rise up from... And, and he would just have these vague prophecies that could be fulfilled in, in different ways. God says, this is the man, this is the time period, this is the political situation, this is the town. Let me just keep narrowing it down. And he takes all these prophecies, hundreds of them, and puts them together... And they all triangulate to the perfect storm where, boom, only one person could have fulfilled this. So even those claiming that, well, the Messiah is coming, no, 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 no. There's at least three prophecies I know of that were time-sensitive. The time has come and gone. If you follow Talmudic writings of, of the rabbis prior to the first century, they all spoke about these prophecies. Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. When Jesus came and went, all of a sudden the prophecies changed. Messiah hasn't come. 
Well, then that means that God didn't tell the truth about his Messiah coming, or you missed it. It was the guy that you were looking for somebody different to take over the Romans. You didn't like what God had provided. So you just look at the, look at the Talmud, look at stuff that is outside the Bible, and you'll still see it proves that God is true. God says, prove me wrong. I'm going to statistically put myself out of the realm of possibility, and then I'm going to come in and do something amazing. It's pretty good stuff. Verse 23, and, and listen, if you're new to this and you're reading this and you're like, man, Hosea and Micah, I'm getting confused. Listen to the message a few times and let it sink in and really just take your Old Testament, your New Testament, flip back and forth and say, wow, different men, different languages, different time periods, different geographical locations, and, they, and they're all colluding. When one guy was right and the other guy wasn't even born yet for a few hundred years, how is there collusion here? You see? It just, it just is mind-blowing. I'm excited about it. I, I, you know, I'm containing myself a little bit right now, <laughs> believe it or not. Verse 23, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, the Greek word is a transliteration of Hebrew, netzer, which means branch. If you read Isaiah 11.1, 11.1 in Isaiah, a very popular prophecy, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. A branch, same word, netzer. He shall be called a Nazarene. Second interesting translation here is that um, Nazareth was a despised town. It was a depressed town. It was a, maybe a low socioeconomic town. Even when Philip said to Nathaniel, look, the Messiah. And Philip goes in John 1.46, can anything good come out of uh, you know, Nazareth? You see what I'm saying? So even before he followed, he's like, yeah, but where's, where's, what's impressive about that? And then Jesus started telling him where he was and what he did, and Nathaniel was blown away. So we know that as a Nazarene, he was despised according to Isaiah 53. I'm just going to say this. You either believe God's divine message system or you don't. And if you don't, you better really do your homework because you will be held accountable to what, for what you've heard today in God's word. God will he'll re, he'll rewind it for you. However, God, we can worship God out of adoration. We're in the time period of grace. Adoration, oh, Lord, you're awesome. You love me. I want to return the love, whatever I can do. There's that adoration period. But there will be a time where the age of grace is cut off and we will worship God out of obligation if we haven't worshipped him out of adoration. He's going to change it. Things are going to change. It's really good to come to God as the king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and to come into his court as his children than to come into his court where he sentences us for judgment. But we get to pick the terms. That's the beautiful part of, you know, we don't have to go for the, for the latter. We can go for the former right now. So I would just say this. If we acquiesce to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, like our master, we will be rejected by the world system. We will find out quickly that this world is not our home. And we can only make a choice which master we will serve because even Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. It can only be one or the other. Let's pray.